Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes edgy secrets of B2B software creation. On today's episode, we have Manny Medina, CEO of Outreach, Mark Organ, former CEO and founder of Eloqua and Influitive, and Godard Abel, founder of Big Machines, Stillbreak, and current CEO of G2. I'm very excited about this. I have a few. This is the first uh, episode we're doing. Um, it started with the category creation discussion and then talking about, you know, who is a successful category creator. Then all of your name came up. And then in the conversation I had with Manny, uh, we said, hey, let's just do a fucking podcast. This is going to be the first. So that was a good, inspiring conversation. And this is how we are. Uh, I have three notes for myself, and I need you to keep me honest on those. First one is... I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk much. No one wants to hear me. Everyone wants to hear uh, you and your stories. So I'm going to keep it brief on my end. Number two is to have fun. I really want to, uh, you know, I want to start with two drinks, but it told me it's too much. So we will just start with uh, just having a little bit of fun and, and casual conversation. I do think that the people who are going to join the, the podcast are going to be super interested to hear. There's a good opportunity to show people your, your true self outside of the office as much as possible. And then uh, I do want to have a lot of, or, you know, a good amount of hidden truths. So not the usual tech crunch saster, you know, on the stage conversation that seems to be, you know, intimate, but really it's broadcasted to 10,000 people, but more like the kind of uh, insight that you give when you were like 20 entrepreneurs or 10 people and you give them, you tell them, well, you know, this is how it really went, or this is something that everyone thinks is true, but it's actually bullshit. Like I know it for a fact because I went through this. So, you know, if we could include those, that's great. Feel free to curse. Uh, that will make me feel more comfortable. So maybe we'll start by uh, kind of a brief intro from each. Manny, maybe you can start us off. Tell us one interesting uh, memory that would never leave you from the moment you started going through the path of category creation. I'm Manny Medina. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Outreach. And I like these two gentlemen. I'm not a serial anything. This is my only company, probably my last company too. Yeah, so I have to start from scratch. I remember really early on when we were pivoting from our previous fail thing to outreach, I met with Mark Organ in a, in a bakery in, in um, Palo Alto, and I just took notes. And he was just dishing out knowledge in big scoops around like how to land and expand accounts and who do you need to talk to. And if you want to land Salesforce, you start with data.com because data.com sucks. And if they buy you, they will expand you in the rest of the organization. It was just like a wealth of knowledge. And... I think that um, one of my superpowers as a CEO is to is, 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 is a bottomless um, amount of curiosity that I have for other people's lives. Um, so I, I ask, you know, every time I get with somebody, I'll try to learn as much as I can from other people. Um, the category creation thing was mostly something that, that um, I did there a lot. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna come out and say, oh yeah, like I was swimming with the dolphins in Hawaii and like the idea came to me and I blew up and category exploded. I, I was actually kind of against it and it's trying to figure out, you know, do we have the cash for it? Like, do we have, do we have it in us to create a category? Can we just be a better CRM? Can we not? And like, you know, it's sort of, we said that with our co-founders who I'm really close to, and we sort of came out to the following conclusion. It's not worth doing if it's not a new category, sort of the short of it. Like if it's not going to be big, I only have like, I'm, I'm almost 50, right? I'm, I'm 47 years old. So I don't, I don't have like, I'm not young and like hoodie wearing, type, right? So I, I, it's got to be meaningful to me. So for us, it was this sort of like separation of system of action from system of 
record that sort of gave us the insight that there was a category here because it was big enough. I mean, there's a lot of acts, you know, systems of actions, the stock is a system of action, for instance. And, and that's when we came up with the moniker of, of sales engagement as a, as, a, as a category. And then we have to go sell it. And you know what's interesting? You know, I got many different, so you read, you know, play bigger and you get a definition of what, of what category creation is. But I, somebody actually gave it to me in a very succinct way. Category is created when an analyst, such as G2 Crowd, declares a category and then it's, it's there, right? So for us, it was, it's been a series of convincing, right? Like we got with Goddard's team and like tried to convince them that this is a real thing. And Max, I think, pulled that trigger, um, pulled that trick. Um, and then getting with Forrester and making sure that they understand that it's a category too. Garden doesn't even believe self-engagement is a category. So that we still have a lot of work to do. They think that we're just a sideshow. So the, the, the entire sort of like, you know, convincing people that a category is a category only happens when somebody else calls you a category. And the moment that, you know, G2 calls a category, that's when we were like, all right, so we got some momentum. We finally got some, some experience. But it wasn't clear. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until, you know, it took us about three Forrester analysts to get to somebody who actually believe what we're saying. And it took a bigger competitive market. You know, I mean, it took for the grooves and the self lofts and the mix maxes and the and the and the and Salesforce to get in to actually start creating enough momentum in the category to be a category. So it's been a fortuitous path that sort of got me here by virtue of everybody else helping out a little bit, not by just us pushing it. How many years since the moment you thought, all right, I think I'm gonna do this. If we're gonna do this, you know, it's gonna be big, we're gonna do this, we you know, we have the cash. You made that that decision. How many years from that that moment to until you know you put on LinkedIn that uh, you're covered and then you're a leader? Um, it, it was when we got the Series A, when we got enough cash for us to actually even entertain the thought. Before then, it was just don't die. So once we, <laughs> once we had 10 million in the background, we're like, all right, what, what are the bigger things that we can be doing? That's amazing. Tell us about the hashtag fail moment. You, you, you know, you're like, you couldn't sleep at night. That was like still the shit show. Um, it happens almost every month. So I have to go and pick one of them. You know, the, the most discouraging call is a call that we had with this analyst from Gardner. His last name, I think, is Berkowitz, who, like, for an hour, he, co- he tried to convince us that self-engagement is not a category. How is a subcategory of self-acceleration, which is a subcategory or some other shit, which is a subcategory of whatever, whatever. And inside sales was a leader. InsideSales.com, that is. It's a leader and like, and that's it. And like, you know, stop wasting my time and like go to something bigger. And like, it was such a disheartening thing. And, and then, and then they, they, you know, 59 minutes into the call, they pause and like, oh, you should subscribe. You should buy a, you should buy some Gardner for your company. I'm like, no, <laughs> the fuck? You just told me how I suck. And then like, we're going to, you you're selling? Is that how you do it? And it's just, just like, I don't know. I haven't met a CEO to be frank. I haven't met a CEO and, and, I talked to a lot of them, you know, we talked to Neil Boostery, we talked to, we talked to a lot of like, you know, Henry Shuck is one of my best friends. We talked to a lot of CEOs. I don't know anyone who actually loves the analysts. You know what I mean? This is, a, you know, I'd love to hear, hear Goddard started because like it creates a better- yeah, you, know, you know who really loves the analysts is Goddard. Goddard, I mean, that's why he created his company. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They made <laughs> him a love of Gardner. <laughs> and he, you know, so loved Gardner that he wanted to create like the thing that is way better than Gardner. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I think every CEO will probably identify with just what you just said. Go to and what, what do you think about this? What do you think about the, the fact that most CEOs do they like analysts or? Well, I love Manny's story, especially about Gartner, and not even wanting to recognize this category because that, that is what inspired me to create G two because I did start as an entrepreneur way back in 1999, right when Mark 
started Eloqua, I was starting big machines. And I really started my first company also from the heart. And I think it's really important as an entrepreneur, like Manny said, right, you want to do something meaningful. And my first company was inspired by my father. And my father ran a small family pump manufacturing business, started in Germany, and then he moved us to the U.S. because he was starting to do a subsidiary. And in 99 was, you know, the first wave of the Internet, the dot-com boom. And I really wanted to help my father sell his pumps online. And at the time, there was no SaaS or cloud software that could help him do it. And so I decided to go build it with big machines. And frankly, it turned into a very long, arduous journey. I did, at the beginning, I was able to raise 20 million bucks because it was still .com and there was all this hype and people were throwing money at you know, anyone smart with an internet idea. And, uh, but then I remember three years later, we were almost bankrupt because we burned through the, almost all 20 million. We had like a million bucks left. And frankly, 2003, there was no way to raise money anymore, at least for us. And so it was a really hard time. I had to scale the company down from 70 to 20 people. But my co-founder, Chris, and I, we decided to keep going because we really believed in what we were building. And we only had about 12 manufacturing customers. The reality is they also weren't buying. They weren't ready for the internet. They weren't ready for the cloud. So we were way too early in hindsight. Um, but we kept going. And then, you know, we did believe we could build a new category which later became called CPQ configure price code software. But I remember at that time, you know, frankly, we didn't really know what to call it. Gartner didn't know what to call it. I think they were saying, talking about sales configuration. And, and then I remember it took us, I think nine years just to get in the Gartner report. So that took until about 2009. And uh, then I think it took us 12 years to become the leader that took all the way till 2012, which led Oracle to buy the company, just like they bought Eloqua. And, uh, but, but I was really frustrated because to be honest, that was the least favorite part of my job was briefing the analyst. And actually I remember our analyst, actually I liked him as a human being, Gene Alvarez, actually a very good guy. But the reality was he'd come from the utility industry. He only had one year in our market. And then, you know, the whole game of where, you know, you have to pretend that they're giving you all the insights on your strategy and all of that. I didn't like that. I love talking to my customers. And so that was really the idea for G2. Hey, let's give the power to the customer and let's do it more like Yelp. They we're having a lot of success for consumer reviews. Let's bring that to B2B software and let's make it possible to create a category much more quickly and based on real customer voice to validate products without having to pay an analyst. And G2 still has a freemium model. And so you can be number one on G2 without ever having to pay us, without ever having to talk to us. As long as your customers, you have the most happy reviews, you'll win on G2. And so we do love that. And I loved hearing Manu's story. And you know, I think we're proud to have supported the creation of sales engagement software. Obviously, it was a great work of Manny and outreach and then also other entrepreneurs like kyle and salesloft chris and groove and ultimately i also learned that with cpq ultimately you actually do want to have some competition and you know i think like outreach you want to be the leader in that category but competitors actually help you right because they all market sales engagement now and we had a competitor later with steelbrick called aptus and they did a ton of marketing and so obviously on every deal you want like crazy to beat them but then you do help each other because you're all marketing that category you know, I love the topic and glad we're able to help Manny and other entrepreneurs build these categories much faster. 100%. I will say, you know, uh, personal experience, I, I always used to uh, pitch G2 as the Robin Hood for SaaS because, you know, we don't have the funding sometimes to pay some of the analysts' suggestions. You know, it's okay to be on the phone and pretend to, to, to take some new advice, but it's another thing to pay like 300000 for it. 
And so uh, I can I can say that for Metadata, 100%, number one on, on G2 was, was what changed us. It's like what put us on the map. Otherwise, yeah, you were already number one on account-based advertising software. Mark, tell us what the, you, you've been laughing a lot. I, I know you have a lot of yeah, opinions. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm really enjoying it. This is, this is a lot of fun for me, hanging out with all you uh, original gangsters. You know, I got my start in the uh, direct-to-student drug business in that category, and then I, I subsequently um, leveraged my... What kind of drugs, Mark? Uh, these were drugs out of my parents' medicine cabinet. Okay. Um, this is when I was like eight or nine uh, apparently, because the person who gave like the valedictorian speech mentioned me and apparently that's what I was doing. So I got my start as a drug dealer and then I, I um, got, um, I leveraged my expertise in that to get into the uh, direct-to-student pornography business. And I won't tell you where I got the porn from, but whatever. Uh, so I've always been an entrepreneur since I was a kid. And, uh, you know, there's no business like the software business. I mean, a drug business is good. The porn business is good. But the software business is like no other business in the world with our 90% you know, gross margins and uh, incredible scalability. And of course the internet went and turned that on, on steroids. Uh, so in 1999, I also created a company or contemporaneously with, with Goddard, a company called Eloqua. And at the time I was a management consultant at, uh, at Bain and Company. And that's really where I saw the need for a piece of software that would help connect salespeople with their best prospects online. Now that was mostly a bootstrap company. I raised $166,000 and uh, I was lucky that I did not raise a lot of money. And like you got it, I mean, it's, I didn't, I never had to lay a lot of people off at Eloqua. Uh, we went through very, very difficult uh, time trying to grow Eloqua uh, as a uh, bootstrap business, but I'm grateful for it because I think it allowed me to get or forced me to get really close to my customer. And that was one of the themes now I've heard uh, throughout this whole thing is the best category creation is actually done when you're really close to your customer. And it's actually one of the things I love most about what G2 Crowd has done for category creation is that instead of greasing the palms of, of the analyst community, you're actually building amazing product awesome go-to-market, you make your customers really successful, and they actually build a category for you. And I think G2 is really turbocharged that. Uh, you want to be different in every way possible. I was really looking for how we could really differentiate our company by aligning with the needs of, well, with a very different customer segment. So I was kind of hardwired to look for that. So when I found these people, that were uh, different from other folks in marketing that I met. So back in the early 2000s, um, you know, Goddard, you would have met some of these people. I mean, people in marketing were, really, were not very quantitative. They were not very process oriented. Um, they were good at you know, picking Pantone colors and uh, finding the right slogan for their brand and, uh, and whatnot. But th they really didn't have this background in sort of process oriented marketing. And in fact, a lot of CEOs uh, took people out of engineering and say, look, we got to figure this internet thing out. We're going to go to market using the internet. My marketing people don't have those skills. Can you figure out this marketing thing? And those are the people that actually, we, I decided to serve. Actually, I decided to serve. I mean, they, they kind of found me as much as I found them. And I think you've heard shades of that through some of the other uh, stories that, that you heard. And then because I didn't really have any money, I said, well, you know, all we're going to do is we're going to bet on these people. We already know they love our ideas. Let's just make them really successful. And let's use their words to, to do our marketing for us. 
I think the people who create your category are your customers. They're the ones that tell you, hey, this is the, what you should call it. This is the way you should describe it. This is what's in and this is what's not in. You know? And if you've identified a people with a distinct set of, of needs and attitudes, frankly, all you need to do is bet on those people and give them everything they need. And they need more than software. Right. They also need services, they need an ecosystem, they need conferences, they need a book, all that inspiration in order to give them the fuel for their revolution. The insight that I had really a few years, even after I left Eloqua, like I didn't even know I was creating a category. I was just following my instinct. It wasn't until I left and started working on a new category, my new company, Influitive at the time, where I said, oh, now I understand the principles of what I was actually doing and started to codify the principles of, of sort of customer-driven category creation. And, and that's really my life's work. Oh, I've been interrupted. I've been rudely interrupted to go and take a drink. Well, you know, twist my, twist my rubber arm. I'll, uh, what, what, I wonder what, what's in here. What anyway. are you drinking? Cheers, everyone. Happy Friday. Yeah! Like, is that straight vodka, Mark? Yeah, it's like pre-made martini, I think. I, I, I was not in a place where I could mix a martini, but at least I have it available. I love that you have Moonlight available impromptu, but you don't have a regular drink. That's, that's amazing. That, I guess, goes back to your history as an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's a long story. And maybe we'll, if I drink enough of this, maybe I'll have a chance to tell you. But anyway. Definitely. I would, I would like that. I heard a lot of wisdom there. And there are three things I remember writing. One is categories are not made in a silo. I think you all agree on that. Uh, you have maybe different points of view of what, what it means, but... I think you all agree on that. It's not someone announcing on LinkedIn, hey, I'm, I'm now playing in this category, not that one. So start following that one and create and, and that's not the way it works. I'm very interested to hear more about the different. He said, hey, you have to be different. We're not just talking about product. We're talking about other things. I would love to hear some examples from maybe many, if, if, or you know, if, if Mark gave you as an example, what, what are some differentiators that you have that are not product? that really make the difference between you and others? You know, when we came out to the market, we, we never, and I think this is the same for, for all three of us, we never had like, you know, an empty space of like, oh, nobody's in the category. We have, a, you know, we have to create it from scratch. When we came into the market, we immediately were competing against Yes, we're Tout and InsightSales.com. And InsightSales.com was the 800-pound gorilla. Um, Salesforce hasn't even pivoted at that point from, you know, scraping LinkedIn and providing data to what they are right now. So like we were really early. And I'll tell you two stories. So one is that we looked at what Yes, we're and Todd were doing and we were like, you know, they had, the day we announced a $2 million, $2 million seed, they had raised almost like within the same week that each of them raised like, you know, 15, one and like $30 million the other from like Battery Ventures and, and Andreessen. And we're like, here we are with $2 million competing with people who just raised another, you know, big round. So we could not, so there's two things that we couldn't do. We cannot compete with them head to head with the same thing. And second of all, um, we had to differentiate in the market in, which, in, in a way that, that, um, that was obvious, meaning we couldn't do marketing around that. We have to, it had to be obvious from the product point of view. So the, the two things that we did that were immediately different were the following. One is that we sold workflows. We didn't tell you, we're gonna tell you email opens or we're gonna tell you, um, you know, what content works or what doesn't work we're gonna sell you the entire workflow. So, you know, if somebody doesn't open an email, we're gonna immediately drop you to the next thing. If somebody does open the email, we're gonna drop you into the next thing. So instead of talking about email tools, we talk about the workflow tool. Even though we didn't have calling at the very beginning, we still talk about workflows. So, and that was, that 
I, I don't know if it's luck or, or, or wit, but I think that was the first differentiating thing. And the second thing that we did, and this is, you gotta be careful for this one because this is where the whistle drops, is that we came out to market charging two to three times as much as they would. And that was differentiating. That is the cheapest way to differentiate. Because the first question that you get is, why the fuck are you more expensive? I'm glad you asked that because we're about workflows as opposed to just email tracking. And all of a sudden you're in a completely different category. You see what I mean? So the, the, you have to fee, be able to figure out what are you, what are you that is nobody else is. And then pricing is a very easy way to differentiate because it triggers the conversation. The next conversation that we had to have after we got over that particular hump was how you different than Salesforce and why are you charging me more than Salesforce? Because eventually our price point went up to hundred dollars and Salesforce is, you know, just course CRM is below that. So I had to get over that question. But by getting over that question, you get over the how you different and all of a sudden you're not CRM anymore. You see what I mean? So those were the two sort of like seminal moments in our differentiating space that, I mean, frankly, we did it out of need because we were, you know, we were sort of like, um, we were, we were eating what we killed. You know what I mean? There was no such thing as like, I was just going to go and race and like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a famous entrepreneur and, you know, like my friends here, like Goddard and, and Mark was like, I've got two exes behind me. This is my third. You know what I mean? I got all the irons, all the kings iron out. I'm like, who the fuck are you? You know, you got an accent. You, you don't go to Stanford. You're Hispanic. There's just all, all things wrong with you. So like I, I didn't, I had to like prove myself, you know, by taking one thing and make it go up into the right. And that was revenue. So for me, that was the only, you know, I charged more because I needed the money and I, and that prompted the conversation of the workflow. So I, I completely agree with those statements that being different actually gets you to where you're going. And the last thing we did actually, just to finish the story is that um, we realized sort of like right before the series C that what's holding us up from growth is education meaning educating more masses to, or to Mark's point, educating more masses about this, the possibility of social engagement. That, and that's, and that, you know, I've been talking to Max actually for like about a year. And that's when we decided, look, they're like, you can help us educate the masses. Sales Hacker is, will be our vehicle to educate more people. And if, and if we invest in the community, actually, I know it benefits everyone, but it will benefit us as a leader in the category. So that's when we did a transaction and you throw them into the fold because we needed that vehicle for just telling everybody. That, that we were different. I thought it was a genius fucking move. I'm sure everyone else thought the same. That was pretty, uh, pretty smart. Uh, any reactions? I think there's some really big ideas there. I, I also, um, I'm a fan of being the premium price player. It's did the same thing at Eloqua and Influitive. Uh, two to three times more expensive than alternatives for, for a good reason. So I like that. Um, yeah, in terms of differentiation, I think education is huge. Um, and I take it a step further. The way that I look at it is that my job is to be the number one advocate for this new role, right? So at, at Eloqua, it was the demand gen leader, the demand gen role, which now, of course, is universal. Everyone had it. But back then, it was a very much a new role. Again, these are people that were not even in marketing. They were often out of engineering uh, doing marketing. And so uh, not just giving them you know, a great product and, and services and ecosystem, but, but even like statistics on compensation, for example, guidance on how to present things to the CMO and even how to be a CMO themselves one day. Um, like we became, and I think we were successful at Eloqua at being the number one um, champion for the demand gen profession. 
and probably the proudest thing for me was seeing the compensation of these people rise uh, tremendously, you know, from around $55,000 a year when I started tracking it to now it's well over $200,000 a year for a good director of demand gen, uh, something I'm proud of. And also at Influtive did the same thing again, 2010, uh, betting on the rise of the customer marketing function. So the idea of selling to customers and through customers, especially um, as a way to build your market. When I started Influtive, this was, uh, you know, probably a, a backwater, like, let's just say the best people in marketing were not customer marketers, okay? The best people were in demand gen, actually. Uh, but I see how this is gonna change because People are not responding to emails. They're not, you know, responding as much to SDRs on the phone. You know, recognize that um, in the future, it's people are going to listen to customers. Um, and marketers are going to have to do a better job of mobilizing customers to do their marketing. Um, so in many ways, Influitive is a bet on the customer marketing function and the fortunes of the company, of which I'm no longer CEO. I'm, I'm, I'm chairman of the board now. Uh, but the fortunes of the company really do rest on whether um, customer marketing is going to be a real thing or not. Are you going to see the CMOs of the future uh, coming out of customer marketing? Um, so we'll see what happens, but that's kind of my, my perspective on that. A lot of parallels to what Manny, uh, what Manny has done. And Manny's story I found interesting and I kind of hadn't heard those names like inside sales tout up in a while. <laughs> and now I only remember that, and especially inside sales for a while was huge, right? And I think they've since rebranded, but like it, Maybe it's like an interesting timing question in my mind about category creation. Yeah. You know, Cause it's almost like in some ways you were like in the middle and maybe you got the timing, right. You know, I don't know if they were too early, their products, but I was kind of curious about that, you know, and I think some of the other companies are category pivoted as well, but like, you know, do you think, was that more luck or was that like conscious on your part, Manny? And I guess I'm wondering all you guys, how do you time it? Right. I think it was all luck. Yeah. So I, I find our pivotal moment was, in um, December 2014, January 2015, when uh, Jason Lemkin just put a blog post talking about the sales stack. And all of a sudden you had a, sales was a stack. It, it, mm. Just like you have a, you know, a lamb stack in development, you now had a sales stack that had, you know, that had the CRM, but it also had a dialer. And, the, and then you have a you know, plethora of dialers. And then you also had, um, you know, an email tool and you had a plethora of email tools and you had, had a workflow tool. And all of a sudden, you know, we're a thing along with, you know, Discover and some info and, you know, Ringlead and all these other things that, you know, Henry went and bought all of them and put one company together. The, mm -hmm. There's all, there's a stack, right? So now the stack has value. And and that really like created the conversation of what's in your stack. And once it wasn't your stack, you need a list. And once, once you get it on a list, then you know, you're in business. So in any case, it wasn't, it wasn't us. You know what I mean? I'm lucky to be there when the time was right. And were you guys the first, like, who was the first company to talk about sales engagement? I am pretty sure we were. You were? Yeah. I am 90% sure we were. And then I guess to your advantage, you got everyone else to follow you, right? Which does seem the other thing. You had a good timing. And then you do want all your competitors to actually follow you into that term. And, and they did. True. The, the question is, how do you then claim it as, you know, how do you become the winner? And, and, and it's actually not that clear that you can create a category and then become the winner of the category. There's nothing written anywhere on how do you actually become the winner. So that we freaked out for a little bit of like, oh my God, everybody just copied the name and now what? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. like you come up with a name, everybody has a name, now everybody copies a name and then you're like, and then and it could, nothing prevents you if you're second, third or fifth to claim that you're the leader in the category. Right. 
know what I mean? Like everybody in G2 Crowd claims to be the leader in the category because, you know, you, you guys have created such a great like kindergarten situation in which everybody's a winner in their own way, which is great. Right. You can kind of slice it a certain way. Of course. But obviously, yeah, kind of like it's like the investment banks do. You know, they're like, oh, we're number one in mid-market IPOs out of Seattle. Exactly. Um, like Southern Chicago. So, you know what I mean? Like that's our, that's our corner. But I think in some ways, and also like one thing about categories, like, my first company was Big Machines, and we were involved in creating the category. Like I said, when I started myself, I didn't know it was going to be called CBQ. And we built a second one in the same category, Steel Brick. And honestly, that seemed much easier. And then we were a follower because yeah, our first company, Big Machines, was part of Oracle. They were now Oracle CPQ. Aptus was out there. They were marketing the shit out of it. And then we kind of showed up late, but we're like, but we knew what they were all doing. We're like, oh, we'll just do a little better. You know, in a lot of ways, that seems easier, right, than being like the guy that like plows the road and then you can just kind of like build a better car and drive down their road, you know? So I don't know, but I think that's, that's it seems like, man, you guys were first, but you've managed to stay at the front of it as well, which is also hard. One thing I heard that was very interesting is that fear, or I guess that million dollar question of what happens if you create a category and then you're not leading that category. You did a great job. Someone else takes the cake. It's like, yeah, this is exactly, exactly what we do. And we're the best at it. Thank you for, for bringing it up. How does that look like? Anyone has a, has a story to share? I mean, I think that was, that was the experience at, at Eloqua. I think um, you know, Eloqua uh, sold for around 900 million and, and Marketo for around 3 billion. So you can make a case that uh, Marketo did, even it was founded uh, more than six years after Eloqua, sort of did run away with the leadership um, of that category. Uh, that said, Eloqua still did go public and still did have a pretty good outcome. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, complaining. Um, and you could argue now HubSpot's still going, right? And now they're like a 10 billion or something, still largely in that they don't call it that. They started talking about marketing software. Yeah, they're, now growth, your road, they're right? now a growth marketing platform. And I think you've just hit on what the effective category creator needs to do, which is reinvent. And I think, Manny, I think you've done a good job of that. I think you're I think you're bigger than sales engagement now. And, uh, but I think, you know, we should look at companies like Salesforce, LinkedIn, um, and HubSpot uh, as inspiration because um, there comes a time where you do have to enlarge. And, and we did that once at Eloqua. We were uh, demand gen automation, and then we became marketing automation. Um, and we did because really our customers kind of took us aside and said, hey, Mark, you know, Mark, you're bigger than this. Like, why are you pigeonholing yourself? And in fact, they are the ones that really pushed us into a bigger, uh, a bigger category. Um, and we listened. And, uh, and then I think after I left the company, uh, I think there was another opportunity to enlarge again, and it was not taken. And maybe that's why um, didn't end up with first place in that market. Um, but there does come a time where you've got to um, probably broaden your footprint again, like how Salesforce, which I would argue Salesforce really is in the, in, from the beginning was in the no software category. Like that was there. If you remember Goddard, like yeah. bigger than the Salesforce logo was the no software logo. True. Um, and, and I that think was the point that was Manny's point, how they were different. Right. You know what I mean? Because yeah. they were just following Salesforce automation and Siebel. Uh, so they were following a category, but then they made the no software thing as how they were different, right? They were in the cloud and you didn't need to install software. And, but they did like, Brady Apple do that. 
he kind of disrupted an existing category, right, by just being very different. Yeah, I think it was much more than just a differentiator, actually. I think that was their category from the beginning. I think that, um, and I, I heard that, I heard that, that Mark told others that, you know, what I really want to build is database.com. And SFA was just a vehicle because it was just hot. Like SFA was hot at the time. Salesforce automation, for people who don't know what that is, um, was, was a really hot uh, topic at the time. The other software out there at the high end, Siebel, which didn't really work. And at the low end, you know, ACT and Goldmine, um, also, you know, pretty easy, easily to uh, disrupt. Um, it, it, you know, so they evolved from Salesforce automation to CRM to then, you know, so having sales and service and sales service and marketing, and then, you know, all the other bolt-ons after that. Um, and I think LinkedIn also uh, did a good job of morphing a lot from where it is that they started. And I think that part is really difficult. I mean, if you were to ask me, so when do you know how to enlarge your category and whatnot? I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure what the answer is other than, you know, spend as much time as you can with your customers, especially the senior customers, and really listen to them yeah. um, and, and study them too. Not just listen to what they say, but study what they actually do um, in how they use your software, how they use related software. How are they using CRM? How are they using spreadsheets? How are they using even pencil and paper? And, and that might actually be the clue as to when you can enlarge and, and how to um, enlarge uh, from there. And, and I do think HubSpot has done a fabulous job. And I think when they're out of ideas is when they'll sell to someone else. A great point. So I, I was talking to another CEO founder, uh, Clark Valverde, the CEO of Envision. And, and we were talking about how he had this framework that, that I roughly agree with that, you know, you, you build a piece of software and if that piece of software is innovative enough, you have, I don't know, two to three years before somebody copies it well enough to, to, to make it worthwhile going one step down. You see, I mean, like you can you can go to the copycat and it's almost just as good, right? You know, if you were to put a time frame around it, I think that that's roughly the timing which you need to go and back and redefine the category. Meaning, you have uh, a category that you define, and then the category is called X. You get the benefits of creating the category, and then a lot of people jump into the category and eventually starts devaluing the product, right? The, way, the easiest way to compete is by offering offering the same for cheaper. So then you have to go and say, oh, I'm glad you like that because now we're this other thing, mm. right? And then the other thing is different than the first thing, bigger encompassing, and then you're bigger. And then you're saying, yes, you can buy point solutions or you can buy the full category. Mm. And you have to do that almost every, every two years. Yeah. And there's just no end to it. You know what I mean? That's the beauty of software, right? It's easy to get in, but it's, it's hard to maintain that corner. As a king, the only way you can go is down. No, I think that's right. I think every 18 to 24 months is probably, is probably right in terms of enlarging the footprint. Um, and then I think also going platform is big, right? If you look at a number of these category kings, they are very pluggable into other systems. In fact, people can often build completely new things based on their platform. I don't know, Manny, to what extent, and Goddard, to what extent, you know, your software products are, are actually platforms. Can creative people essentially build new software based on uh, what you guys are doing, and then also ecosystem. What kind of an ecosystem do you have around your products? Because I, I think the, like for example, at Salesforce, I think the real unsung hero of Salesforce is the App Exchange. Right. Sure. And no, sure. really, nobody talks about it. And uh, I think that's the real lock-in is yeah. is in that. You have to. It's what you made have to bring us what made all of us successful entrepreneurs, right? I know all our products did well initially through the Salesforce ecosystem, through the platform. 
And, and then I was also, you know, they bought my company Steelbrick. So for a little bit over a year, I worked at Salesforce integrating it. And they also have all this amazing data that probably the best predictor of renewals for Salesforce customers is the number of integrations off the App Exchange. Yeah. And that renewal rate, even with one integration, goes up a lot, two, three. But then once you have like five integrations, you know, and, and I think this is true for like, you know, even when you buy outreach, right? It's not like you're shutting down Salesforce because it's perfectly integrated. And, and then every app you layer, it just makes them stickier and stickier. And I think you're right. I mean, that was, they probably nailed that platform play better than anyone, right? And even how to turn the limitations, because frankly, they haven't extended their own SFA CRM that much. But by enabling the platform and all these partners, it's made them even more central and more sticky than probably any software they could have built on their own. It also seems really hard because to build a platform now, right, to get developers on top of you. I mean, obviously Salesforce does that, Microsoft does that, Oracle does that. And I don't know when you think, and I'd be curious, like me and you guys are getting bigger, but like how much scale do you need to try to build your own platform? It's a, it's a question that we talk about almost every quarter for the last two years. Yeah. And it's one of the problems that, that unless, I mean, frankly, unless the CEO is committed, there's no ROI unless, until there is. It's one of those things that it doesn't matter until it's, it's all that matters. We, we sort of like, took it in chunks, right? Like we decided to make, uh, you know, to, you know, automate the provisioning of keys and auth. And that was like a project that I just did with, you know, my co-founder and, a, and another early developer. And then that was done and then we pulled back. And then and then sort of like revamping the API layer and that, that was done and then we pulled back. And it's been a little bit of like a fits and starts. But over time, what we're seeing, we're, you know, the the on on untold story is that by doing that, you're actually testing the market, right? Like how many people would actually write to it and what is the appetite? You know, and once you get going, it was the right business model, right? Like I think people are a little burned with paying 20% to the app exchange and the fact that you get no distribution anymore and you have to pay now for top placement and all these other things. So by sitting back and observing how the market is laying out, you can actually come up with a better solution. Although you, you, can, you can almost argue that Salesforce app exchange is a monopoly at this point. Like you kind of have to, if you want to build, I mean, I know that for our small startups, you have to have Salesforce. It's like the mafia, you're paying for protection. I mean, you have yeah, to have I mean, like You're always paying for nobody to break into your, into your store. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you don't, you don't necessarily have to publicly list on the app exchange, right? You can True. have an API, but but then you don't get the credibility of being there. So it is, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, we are coming to towards the end. How, how are you doing on your drinks? I know I'm gonna get uh, one more. Yeah! Godard, tell us something that no one else knows about you. That you usually, how do you usually ask this question in a, you know, this is just between us and all the, all the people who will ever download this podcast. Well, if I'm being edgier, it's that I spent a night in jail. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's How really hard these... to believe, Cotter. I, I have, have thinking you're making this shit up. Yeah, no, that's true. And uh, it was, and I won't tell the full story, but it was kind of a, right as I was graduating college. It was actually, in that, it was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But, uh, but frankly, experience, I'm, I hear experience I'm glad I had. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Definitely going to hear the, the rest of that story some other time. Manny, what about you? Give us something that no one knows about you. There was right before I started outreach, I really got into soap making. Interesting. And and the and the inspiration, I'm not gonna lie, was Fight Club. Mm. I watched that movie and I was like, oh shit, you can make soap with people's fat. Maybe I should try to make soap. And I, I mean, I didn't kill anyone to make soap, but <laughs> I did. I did get into it. Thank you for that. And it was very relaxing. <laughs> what about you, Mark Organ? What's uh, what's something that is unknown but uh, but true about you? Uh, so I. Uh... Uh, I paid my way traveling across Europe by juggling uh, devil sticks. I don't know if you know, it's like you've got two sticks and you're juggling a third stick. 
Um, so I would stick like a hat and people would throw money in. This was back in like 1994. Uh, and, but then to make more money, I said, well, why don't I just light the ends on fire? <laughs> and it was great. I definitely made more money. Uh, until when I was in Budapest, I lost control of the stick and actually uh, set a girl's dress on fire. <laughs> and back then, like, this is still just, it just um, emerged from uh, like the Iron Curtain not too long before. Like, this is not a place where you wanted to get in trouble. Um, so yeah, I had to get the hell out of Hungary. Um, <laughs> You're marked. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Gentlemen, any, uh, any last points before we end? I really, really enjoy this. Uh, this was like hanging out with, uh, with, with friends and really cool people. You know, I really think the, the common thread through a lot of our stories really is about getting close to your customer. And that sort of sounds kind of trite, but I know from my coaching work that I do with, with CEOs, it's amazing how little time my CEOs are spending with their top customers. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why I think you really want to make your business efficient and have a good operating model and whatnot is so that you can actually spend more time with these people and, li and listen to them and get insights about your product and about your go-to-market um, and, and even about your operations that your people will never know. I mean, the junior folks that don't have access to, you know, VP or C-level people aren't going to know that. Um, you know, all my category insights pretty much came from my direct surface area with customers. And, and I think the, the magic of G2 is that it just turbocharges the same system that I used for, for creating, you know, the category with analysts. I mean, G2 just turbocharges it by having, you know, a hundred proof connection between uh, customers and, and reviews. So if there's one thing I would encourage the you know, listeners of the, the podcast to do is escalate the amount of time you spend with customers starting this week. How many hours per week would you recommend? Absolute number for a CEO in a series A, series B? I would shoot for at least an hour a day. You can do it, uh, which also includes prospects too. And it's not just, not just customers I mean, prospective customers, I think counts. But if you can hit an hour a day with people who actually either spend money with you or uh, want to spend money with you, uh, you will see a dramatic improvement. Like that, that giant insight that will allow you to make that right turn in your business is going to happen um, if, you're, if you're able to do that. And of course, you can only do that if you've got other things going right in your system, right? If you're, you know, if you're wasting hours a week doing things you shouldn't be doing because you've got too many direct reports or you've got an operating system that doesn't work or you've got a board that's a pain in the ass or whatever else, then you're actually taking away time from what, what, what really matters. And, and I think that's, that's your market. Uh, you know, all the secrets, uh, that's a very big insight. That's, that's a uh, big insight. Many, anything you want to leave the, the listeners, you know, want to make sure they, they, uh, they remember before we leave this. Yeah. When, when in doubt, talk to your customers, but to, to be able to spend quality time with them, you need to make sure that you have, you know, good, people in your company that you have good investors that your board is giving you the space to do it. One of the biggest insights that I had was actually a non-customer and talking to prospects is also important, but you have to make sure that you are not getting jerked around. And this is the magic of entrepreneurship, right? Like some customers want you to go do something that is completely foreign to what you're doing. So customers will show you the future and, and you have to be very discerning as to who, who they are. 
and the non-customers will be helpful too. So you have to keep an ear on both. Yeah, I uh, I, I tend to, to talk a lot with customers sometimes before they churn. There's a lot of lot of insight there, but to, to get a mix is important. Goddard, you have all the data on all the category creators and the category creators wannabes and all the SaaS products out there. You must have so much insight into what's happening, what's coming up, what's the next big category. Anything that you want to uh, kind of leave the, leave the listeners, the, the watchers with before we finish from your place? Well, I certainly agree with Mark and Manny. It is all about the customer. And that's why we started G2 to get the customer more voice. And I will say, I do think COVID's actually made that easier, you know, spending time with customers. Because one beauty of Zoom, right, you can hop around the world. And I do try to have at least two customer prospect meetings a day. And I think now with COVID, there's almost no excuse. It's so easy to hop on a Zoom. You don't have to hop on an airplane. So I, I definitely agree with that. And the other cool thing about COVID we have seen is that most categories, anything digital, you know, and also anything that enables digital sales, digital marketing, digital e-commerce is just growing and growing faster. So I do think it's a wonderful time to be a digital SaaS software entrepreneur. And, uh, and I do think if you listen to your customers, then hopefully, you know, like Manny, we'll all find our luck. And when you see all those customers heading one way, you can just amplify it. So I think it's an exciting time to, to be an entrepreneur. Nice. You all are very humble. The, the luck, luck is definitely part of it, but the, you pushed... He pushed for making this happen so much. Thank you, uh, all of you. I had such a good time. This is a this is an awesome first talking episode for this uh, for this podcast. Again, thanks for joining. You three are are setting up a very high bar for the next uh, few, few episodes to come in. Thank you very much for participating, giving us your uh, your great in, insight and from your experience, as well as uh, showing us a little bit of your uh, character outside of work. So, thank you very much, all three of you. Goddard, Manny, Mark, have a wonderful uh, weekend. And thank you again. Thank you. See you guys. Bye-bye. See you later. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out.